0: Okay, we are, can I get the PowerPoint, please? We are um, just getting going in a series entitled Letters for Life. Earlier in the year, we looked through Acts uh, right up to the beginning of Chapter 13. We didn't do all of Chapter 13, and we went through it a bit at a time and learnt what we could from it. From now on into November time, what we're going to do is look at the sweep of the story... Uh, from Acts 13 to 28, and see what themes there are in there. And then this is the clever thing, you see, because these churches that were planted were made up of living, breathing people whose stories unfolded further and who had other issues that they needed to deal with, uh, the apostles wrote letters to those churches to address the issues that we see coming up, even in the book of Acts. And so each theme that we look at, we're going to turn elsewhere In the New Testament, to one of the letters written to one of those churches where they were given instruction as to how they should understand that aspect of their life together. And today's theme is about the Word of God spreading. If you um, read through, if you were attentive as we were going through the earlier chapters of Acts, you would have noted occasionally that there is this phrase, that comes up again and again about the word of God spreading. It continues on into the rest of Acts as well. And that's what we're looking at this morning. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, the first reference it up there. It says that after the seven deacons were appointed, that the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased. Later, after Herod died, it says again, Acts chapter 12 and verse 24, the word of God continued to increase and spread. And then after Paul's first missionary journey, or actually during his first missionary journey, in Acts chapter 13 and verse 49, it says that the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. And this map's just to help us remember that Jesus said to his disciples, that they would be his witnesses in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's what happened. It started there in Jerusalem, where the little red dot is, and spread to Judea and Samaria. And then the ends of the earth, well, they got as far within the horizon of the New Testament, at least as far as Rome. There's all kinds of churches that were planted in this period that aren't talked about in the New Testament, And there was, people went all over the place. We get, as the, as this movement spread, we get little snapshots here and there of particular regions and particular churches and particular journeys that people went on. But we know that the word of God just spread like wildfire. And the story of Acts chapter 13 to 28 is largely about Paul's journeys to those distant lands, to those ends of the earth, where he went with a clear intention of spreading the gospel, of seeing the word spread. The first journey... In Acts chapter thirteen and fourteen, uh, took him to. It was an exploratory kind of journey, really. God sent them out, instructed them to go from uh, from Syrian Antioch, and they went to places that they knew pretty well. They went to Cyprus because Barnabas was in the team, and he was from Cyprus. They went also to what's now eastern Turkey, uh, the areas of of, um, of Pisidia and, uh, a little bit around there, which is near where Paul came from in Tarsus. So they went to places that they were familiar with from earlier in their lives, exploring what it would be like to go on a missionary journey. They came back. It was in that first journey that they said the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. And it wasn't long before Paul and others went out on another second journey that's recorded in Acts chapters 15 to 18. Paul, it says, as part of that journey, really, really wanted to get into what we would now call Western terms. Turkey, which was then called Asia. It's a little bit confusing when we now think of Asia as taking up about a third of the world. Uh, At that point, Asia was the western, I'm assuming that you know which bit of this is Turkey. Have I got a pointer on this thing? Oh, there we go. Look, it's that bit there. Yes, there we go. So they went into eastern Turkey before and Paul was really keen to get into western Turkey, but it says that the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them. And so instead of getting into, Eastern, uh, into Western Turkey, they went to Europe instead. And just about managed to pay a brief visit into Western Turkey, into Asia, into the city of Ephesus on their way home. Ephesus being the chief city of Asia. Having seen incredible things happen in what's now Greece. Well, it was Greece then as well, I think. Anyway, the third journey that Paul went on, chapters 18 to 21. In this journey, they went through... They went through, from back from Jerusalem, up through this area, it says strengthening the disciples that they had met in this area before, but then headed straight on, it says they took the interior road, which goes kind of about here, and straight across into this area of Asia, and Paul headed straight for the city of Ephesus, and seemingly didn't stop on the way, but went there, and then stayed in Ephesus for several years. What I'm going to do now is read a little bit from Acts chapter 19, so do turn there, which talks about what happened when Paul was in Ephesus on this theme of the word of God spreading. I'm going to read from chapter 19 and starting at verse 8, where it says that Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, they refused to believe, and publicly maligned the way. The way being the name was their brand name at the time, for followers of Jesus, the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of God. Um, doesn't seem at all likely that they all, we know that they didn't all come in to the lecture hall of Tyrannus on a sort of ticketed system with long queues to get in and hear the word of God that way. The word of God spread from that place into the whole region. It says in verse 11 that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, which is like really cool miracles. Uh, ordinary miracles is stuff like seeing the blind, you know, see again and so that. I'm looking forward to finding out what the definition of extraordinary miracles is when we get to heaven. But that sounds pretty cool. Even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick. Their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. That is pretty extraordinary. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say... In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them. What voice do we do for an evil spirit? Jesus, I know. And I know about Paul. But who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds... A number who'd practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And we're going to focus in a little bit this morning on this region of Asia. This region, there's Ephesus towards the left, which is a port and the major city, and as the word of the Lord spread, what it did was give rise to a network of churches. So from Ephesus, the word spread in Asia, and churches appeared at least in all of these places. Actually, these are pretty famous churches. These are the churches that get called the churches in Asia in the book of Revelation, where letters are sent to the seven churches, These are the seven churches. And Revelation starts in Ephesus, which was the centre of this network, uh, and then goes round in clockwise order through them. First Ephesus, then Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, as you come on round. Uh, And uh, we know that Paul did not visit all of these places. It wasn't Paul who personally planted all these churches. Um, the New Testament tells us here and there that it was other people who first went to some of these cities. So what was going on was that there was this center in Ephesus where the word of God was being proclaimed every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And then, and then life was going on. You know, people lived in Ephesus. Maybe they came in to sell their cows or something. And whilst they were there, they heard something. Everyone here is seized with fear of the name of the Lord Jesus. He's held in high honour. And they got born again, and they took the word of the Lord back with them to whatever little place they came from. Or maybe maybe sometimes people deliberately went out and thought, I've been living in Ephesus for some years. My family are up in the village back at the way. They've never heard about this Jesus. And they went out deliberately to go and start something in the place where they came from. When I was in Nepal a couple of years ago, I found that's precisely what's going on in the nation of Nepal at the moment. There are some strong churches, five or six hundred people in Kathmandu, and people who live in the city, many of them coming from different villages up in the mountains, realize after they've got born again and been in the church a year or two that this blessing hasn't yet got to their family. And so they go. And without any idea of how they're going to make a living or you know, whatever professional studies they've done, they go back to their family and say, there's got to be a church in my, in my family's place. And so the word of God spread out from Ephesus, and the result of that was a network of churches. And it's really important for us to understand that their story is our story. Sometimes when we read Acts, we think, well, that's a nice bit of history. Glad that that happened for them and we'll learn what we can. But actually, their story is our story. Our friends at St Ebbs are involved in a movement called Acts 29. There is no written Acts 29. It's a church planting initiative in which they're saying all that went on in those chapters of the book of Acts is continuing today. We're living in the next chapter we are part of the continuing story, so that their story is our story, and in our own little way, that's true for us around here. They formed a network of churches. We have a bit of a network of churches around Oxfordshire as well. There's Oxford in there somewhere, uh, covered over near where it says Cumnor. These are other churches that are part of Oxfordshire Community Churches. If you're new to us, I thought I'd include this this morning. If you're new to us, you might not realise. Oxford Community Church is part of a network of churches with Lifehouse from Kidlington, uh, the Lees Community Church, also in the city, and then others across the county. If your local geography isn't very good, it's not going to help you, is it? (laughs) Still. It's also... Our story that people have come to us over the years and been transformed by an encounter with God got the Word of God in them and then wherever they've go they 've gone gone they have taken that word and in some cases seen some quite extraordinary things happen our most um, Uh, recent people that went out I think with a clear sense of we're going to go and start something where we go is Crispin and Chloe went last year to West Wales they've been with us for some years, they lent one of our small groups and so on and got a job in West Wales and what's happened as they've gone there is there are Christians coming to them and saying we'd like to have a Bible study and Chloe could you just teach us what you know we don't feel we've got anything to contribute if you could just speak some words and uh, non Christians as well are coming to them, and just what say, they've got some, some friends who say to them, You know, we really believe that Christianity screws people's lives up, but your lives are pretty good, and we'd like a bit of what you've got, please. Uh, we, I think of John and Nom, who we sent to southeast Paris, and uh, they were student workers with us, they came as students, they got somehow, somehow, this word of God got into them. And it was a little bit in them before they came here, and God put a lot more of it in them whilst they were here. And so when they went, they couldn't help but spill it out where they've gone. And they're now, there. they happen to be leading a church now in southeast Paris, baptising new believers, and it's all very good. And there are many other people who've gone out over the years. So their story in Acts of the word-spreading network of church, networks, plural, of churches forming, because the one in Asia was only one of them, that's our story too. We're living in that reality. And if Lulu was here this morning, she would want to testify to the fact that she is carrying around, pinned to her body, a prayer cloth that someone, Mike Beaumont, in fact, prayed over, and which she keeps pinned to her body, because she's got faith that God is healing her various infirmities... Uh, she's got various, she'll tell you all about them if you stop and talk to her um, various infirmities, she's actually found that since embracing that and pray, uh, in faith, God's been healing her, so I mean if, if Paul's extraordinary miracles include handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him being taken to the sick we've got that too it's good isn't it yes. we there store, maybe not quite as much as Paul and I haven't seen any aprons going round either <laughs> But their story is our story. I was converted to Faith in Christ in 1988 by Billy Graham. It wasn't a personal conversation. (laughs) I was in a cinema and a film in which he was preaching the gospel was being shown. And I was converted. Billy Graham was converted in 1934 by a guy who gloried under the name of Mordecai Ham. It's interesting, a very Jewish name. First, Mordecai. Very un-Jewish name, Ham, isn't it? <laughs> Just noticed that. Anyway, Billy Graham was converted in 1934 under Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham was himself converted under his father's ministry in 1885. So this is my spiritual family tree. I've got a, I was born, spiritually born again, in 1988... My father in the Lord was born in 1934. My grandfather in the Lord was born in 1885. We've all got a spiritual family tree like that. It goes back. And uh, you can trace it. If you trace it back far enough, you'll probably reach the Apostle Paul. You might not. You might somehow sidestep him and get the Apostle John or something instead. Or maybe someone less well-known, but you'll definitely get to Jesus we're part of his movement. It's Their story It's our story. We are, we are connected to their story. We are the continuation of their story. I don't know how many links it is, how many generations it would be for different ones of us. And just as that, bun- that bunch of churches... Have I got another slide of them? Oh, no. That, that bunch of churches there was part of something much, much bigger... So we, too, in our little network here, are part of something bigger. That's Britain. uh, From space, at night. And uh, you might try and work out which dot is Oxford. There's a much bigger picture of what's happening in the UK. And we're part of it. We applied to start a school in the city... ...and got permission to do so. Hooray! So Tyndale Community School is opening in a year's time... ...and we got mock-ups of the logos that we might use this week. One of them does look like a circular saw... ...and we probably won't use it. But others of them are very good... ...and we will use one of them. And the building's moving along nicely. By the way, I asked everybody to pray last week... ...for um, the deadline for people applying to be the school principal... ...which is on Friday. Now, I don't know what you prayed, but no one applied... So maybe the prayers had the effect of preserving us from the wrong person applying. I don't know. There's still time. We're not panicking. We deliberately have got on with that really quickly to leave time to still go through another recruitment process. So, but just please do keep praying about that. Anyway, what I found is that through the school, we're talking to various people in the city and beyond about partnering with us. And a question that comes up from time to time is this. Are you going to use this school to proselytise? And I find that a really interesting question. And I say that, and that's really interesting that you should ask that. Because the fact that you're asking it kind of betrays an assumption that you're making. Because the word proselytize has this feel around it that, that we would kind of do something to someone fairly forceful and coercive that would make them become a Christian. You know, deprive them of sleep for three weeks or something, and... I don't know. What you, I don't know how you do that. And people think, are you going to somehow put pressure on people to become Christians? And the really interesting thing is, their underlying assumption is that being a Christian is an inherently unattractive thing. And kind of, therefore, no one would ever become a Christian unless you forced them. That's, that's the underlying assumption. And it's based on the fact that there has been, in the late 20th century, there was a decline in the denominational churches in the UK... You know, people leaving in droves. Um, I'm not going to read from it. I brought with me this morning a scholarly article that's just been published about the fact that as the churches were declining, people started to try and understand that. And they made up some frameworks to try to grapple with it and said things like, well, you know, since science is spreading through the world, it's gradually pushing away the superstitions of religion and, you know, since science is good, basically religion is go- it's not only in decline at the moment, it's going to be in terminal decline, and the world will end up being ruled by atheists. Didn't put it quite like that. They called it secularisation. But most people have bought in, and actually lots of Christians have bought into the idea that the heritage that we have in the church is somehow going down and down and down and down and down, and, down, and we're just kind of clinging on by our fingernails to survive. But... Uh, For quite a while now, the picture has been rather brighter. What is happening is that the churches that are institutions and that get sent census forms by quangos that want to understand them and fill them all in, they, by and large, I mean overall, are continuing to decline. But under the radar, there's all kinds of wonderful things happening. Churches being planted, 10 to the dozen. I mean, there's been, in the last 25 years, more than 40 churches planted in this city. I think, if I think about it, probably not more than about five of them would get sent one of those census forms saying, how many people have you got in your church? Because they're just not that organised. They're not that institutional. And people are starting, finally, to wake up to the fact. I mean, just about on the edge of what the media are getting their heads around is that Whilst there's been a continuing decline in the institutions, there is life welling up in the church. And the church is strong in a way that once it wasn't. The biggest movement of the late 20th century wasn't the New Age or Buddhism or anything but Pentecostalism. In 1960, there were 12 million people that would have described themselves as Pentecostal or charismatic in the world. 50 years later... That's over 500 million people. That's one in 12 people alive, roughly. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. So God is doing something. And we need to understand that the little network that we're part of is part of a global spreading of the gospel. The word of God is spreading, and we are privileged to be part of it. So let's go back to Asia a minute, because this was this gospel movement. There was a church that I left off. It's right down there, look, Colossi. If I go back, it says Colot, and then it's Colossi. It's just there in the corner. Colossi was the back of beyond, back of nowhere. You can see there's mountains around there and a river valley or two that go up. And Colossae's right at the top end, and you just wouldn't go there unless you had a family there. Actually, at the time that these churches were being planted, uh, its economy was in decline, so you wouldn't even go there to try and start business. It was just the middle of nowhere. And yet a guy called Epaphras, who somehow got converted in this network of churches, went to Colossae. Maybe he had family there. We don't really know. And he spoke the gospel, and a church was planted there in Colossae, there in the back of beyond. And what Paul, as the apostle supervising this network, did was he wrote wrote them a letter. It was like an introductory letter. We have it in our Bibles. The letter to the Colossians, in which he said, you know, welcome, really, You're part of something. There's something much bigger going on than you'd understand in the small town that you're part of. Welcome to the worldwide movement that is uh, in Christ. So let's turn to Colossians. What we're going to do is have a look at a a couple of different places in Colossians to help get... Because this, this letter was written to them as a local church, it's all very exciting, isn't it? The, the fact that stuff's going on right across the world, very exciting. But like, so what? You know, what, what does that, How does that make a difference to what I do tomorrow? I can be a little bit excited for a moment. What does it make? What difference does it make to what I do tomorrow? So in Colossians one and verses three to six, Paul wrote this: We always thank. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that's come to you. And then he says, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it's been doing amongst you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. is saying, you've received this word. You need to understand that this same word, is going everywhere. You've become, what you are, is part of a global movement, a global spread of the gospel. And then, through the letter, he tells them various things that they need to understand about what it is to be in this gospel movement, this Jesus movement. What what do they have to be like? What do they have to do as part of that? And there's a whole letter. We did a teaching series on Colossians not too long ago. If you want to get your head around the whole of Colossians, you can find that online. I just want to highlight three things. The first thing is that this movement is sustained by prayer. This movement is sustained by by prayer. Um, where the church is growing with tens of millions of people joining the church in China, you know, people who don't understand things spiritually look on and say, ah, it's because there's a lot of turmoil in Chinese society and the people coming into the cities are feeling a bit lonely and the churches are friendly and so the churches are growing because they're, they're friendly." Um, I think they probably are sometimes friendly, but that, like all churches they 're full of sinful people who annoy each other as well and If you talk to people in the church in China, they would say that the main thing is the holy Spirit 's at work that 's their experience from the inside of the moon. the holy Spirit 's at work, and it 's sustained by prayer. They pray a lot Paul says. Uh, in Colossians 1 and verse 9, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. So you're in the movement. Brilliant. We're not going to stop praying for you. That's where the sustaining life comes from. And asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Jesus is the air we breathe, it's Jesus who works miracles. If there's anything, you know miraculous going on. You know, whatever's going on through that hanky that Lulu's got pinned to her, whatever's going on, it's Jesus that's doing it. It's not magic. It's Jesus. He is the air that we breathe. He is the one who works miracles. He's the one that causes the word to spread, to divide soul and spirit. Um, about a fortnight ago I was in Lincoln meeting a guy called Stuart Bell who leads a network of churches called Grand Level talking to him about various things and he was telling me about how their church new life, church in Lincoln is growing afresh in this season and it's very delightful. We were talking about the reasons why and there were several but the main one he said is, you know what we've just got a new wave of spiritual life we've just got a new wave of spiritual life and then everything else, just, you know, people are just coming in and it uh, was another helpful reminder that all that we are and all that we have is sustained by God and that's access through prayer. The last few weeks have been mentioning this little booklet, which I hope you've got a copy of. If you haven't, again, we'll make sure that they're available in the foyer at the end of this morning's meeting. It says, Breathe On It, an invitation to a closer walk with God, which is an invitation to join... Uh, A good number of us who are adopting a daily pattern of prayer, which is that we do pray and read our Bibles in the morning. There's some advice in here as to how you can do that fruitfully in just 10 minutes. So that should be manageable for everybody. Some suggestions as to how to pray. A commitment to pause in uh, the day, around lunchtime, and simply pray the Lord's Prayer to remember God's presence with us and to affirm our trust in him midway through the day. And then... When we eat in the evening, whether we're alone or with others, to take that meal as an opportunity to do more than just thank God for the food, but take the time to think about the day, if you're with other people to talk about the day, say what's got on today, what is it that we need to pray about out of today, and include a bit of a prayer time around your meal, as well as just saying grace quickly, and then eating. And I've already started to hear people saying, this has been really, really good. It's made a difference. It's bringing God into the everyday. And I just want to encourage you to be aware of that invitation and to take it up. Um, next Sunday, for those of you who are here, some of you will be in Kiddlington next Sunday, but for those who are here, uh, there will be that time of prayer before the meeting. It's like there's, a, there's an appetite for prayer that's rising amongst us, a hunger for prayer, which is a really, really, really good sign. Actually, there's also a time of prayer and praise, and we trust some prophetic ministry here this evening, Outbreak, um, which is our monthly Sunday evening, just to be in God's presence together and see what he wants to do. That will be here tonight. Bev's parents have a magnet on their fridge, which has been there as long as I can remember, which says, seven days without prayer makes one week. I like that. I find that helpful. Actually, a couple of days without prayer leave you weak. And uh, Christian maturity is not about being self-sufficient, but knowing that you're deficient and understanding that you've got to pray just to make it today. So it's about prayer. (laughs) Paul also says to them, Look, guys, the word's come to you, but now that the word's come to you, you've got to do something with it. Now that the word's come to you, what you need to do is you need to share it with each other. So in Colossians 3 and verse 16, he writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. The word has come to us, and the word's in us. So the reason I've chosen this picture, which I've used before, of coals in a fire, is if you take any one of these coals to one side, with all the heat that's in it, what, it, what will happen is it'll, it'll go cold. But the picture of the fire is a great picture of what a congregation of saints, of disciples of Christ, is supposed to be like. We have all got our own life in the Spirit. There's that heat, that fire of the Spirit. But it's being shared with others as well. And it's helping keep them hot. And their heat is helping keep us hot. And so Paul says, let this word of Christ dwell in you... As you share it with one another, teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Uh, I was listening to an Australian preacher online recently, and I just need to say that I got this from him. And I thought it was brilliant. I'm thinking about this heat, um, we can all be a thermometer. You know, when we go into a place of Christian fellowship, we can fairly quickly get a feel for what the spiritual temperature is. We can judge whether these are people who are dwelling in the Word. We can judge whether these are people who are praying, who are full of the Spirit, who are full of love and patience and kindness and joy. That's really good. That's really helpful. But you know, what we can also be is we can be a thermostat, which doesn't only measure the temperature, but acts to change The environment and actually controls the environment that there is, and the difference is between you know you come into a a meeting where there's you think the prayer here is just a bit rubbish. You know it's just really cold. Now you can sit there thinking this is a rubbish thing, isn't it? Or you can start praying, probably praying in the spirit. Come on, let's start praying. You can be a thermostat, not just a thermometer. It's what Paul's getting at with this thing about the Word of God here. You know, if, you, um, if we speak the Word of God to each other, it will do each other good. It's interesting that the words Paul teaches here at this point are not encourage each other, but teach and admonish one another. And uh, sometimes we need a little bit of courage, don't we, to admonish one another and to bring a relevant word from God. If someone's really angry with you, then it's probably appropriate to say to them, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness that God desires. Quote James at them. Duck. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I don't know how many arguments you have in your life where people get angry and we we talk about all the stuff and we don't bring the word of God in. You know, don't let the sun go down on your anger, or because it'll give the devil a foothold. We need to bring the word of God into our lives, into our conversations. Um, Wives, if you see your husband watching a film on TV which seems a little bit like maybe it's a little bit more sexual than would be good for them, if you say, "I'm not sure that's good to be watching," probably won't do very much. If you say, if you quote the Sermon on the Mount. You know, if you look lustfully, it's adultery, my love. (laughs) Now, the word of God has power in it, doesn't it? Yeah? Yeah? And Paul says to these guys in Colossae, look, you're you're part of this movement because the word has spread to you. So what you need to do is incubate the word amongst yourselves be a people amongst whom the word is dwelling richly so that you're strong in the word of christ then the other thing is that um, this movement spreads it spread then and it spreads now through open doors and open mouths in chapter four and verse two paul says again devote yourselves to prayer being watchful and thankful And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. And be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Paul asked for prayer for himself for two things. And he instructed them in the same two things. The first thing is about open doors. The second thing is about open mouths. He says, pray for me that God would open a door. Verse 3. It says in verse 5, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Every The Greek word is kairos. Uh, every significant moment. There's When there's a kind of... <sighs> you know you go through life and this kind of time passes and then there are windows there are there are moments when you just feel like there's more that could go on here and Paul says pray that those doors open pray that that happens but also make the most of them so there's an attentiveness there that he's after in us and um you know, at, any, at any given point, there are open doors around us. Um, what we don't need to do is simply to sit back saying, well, everything around me is closed and is not working and I'll just pray. At any given point, there is the call to pray for doors to be open. And at any given point, there are open doors around us already which we need the grace from God to spot and to walk through. And we walk through them by opening our mouths. Paul says in verse 4, pray that I might proclaim it clearly as I should. And in verse 6, he commands the Colossians to be eager to engage in conversation, to listen and to speak about what people are interested in. This is the only place in all of Paul's letters that he uses the word answer, so that you may know how to answer everyone. An answer is a response to what someone else is saying. It's not just going to say, I've got a message to proclaim, bang, 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 this is what I've you know, done, go and have a cup of tea now. Answering means you've listened to what someone's asking. Answering means you've listened to what someone's talking about, and that means you've been in a conversation with them. So, Paul's encouraging them to go out, to be willing to engage in conversation, and to answer the questions that people are actually asking. So, both of these things... Actually, open doors and open mouths—they're both about being poised, aren't they? Really about being ready, ready to walk through an open door, and ready to engage with people. Who, who here is would describe themselves as more introverted? Yeah. Um, who are the extroverts? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> um, so I suppose, I suppose I need to say a special... Hmm. This thing about open doors and open mouths, extroverts have got their mouths open all the time. <laughs> and extroverts need to be a little bit more savvy at noting where there are open doors. So that when you speak, you walk through something where there's just a, you know, a freedom and an ease and an effect. Yeah. Uh, introverts are forever looking for open doors and concluding that there aren't really any. And keep their mouths shut. And just, just keep waiting for a better opportunity. That was a lovely opportunity when that person asked me what they needed to, to do to be saved. But I wasn't quite sure that it was clear enough as a question. So, <laughs> so it's about open doors and open. It's, about, it's a both and thing. And there are challenges for each of us in this. And I wonder whether particularly it would be good to pray for introverts here this morning who feel that the spreading of the word is something that someone else does. Actually, if you are a more reflective person who actually thinks before you open your mouth, then that gives you opportunity to spot uh, opportunities that the extroverts would just sail past because they've just been yabbering. Yeah? So... It's not a problem. It's, it's not a problem. Um, but we need a, an openness to God that when he opens doors, we'll open our mouths. Yeah? I think I'm just about done. Oh, except to say that I think all of this comes back to the... There's a, a word from Scripture and a prophetic word that Roy Godwin brought to us when he was with us a few weeks ago, which was about waking up. Jeremy led us in worship at the beginning, songs about waking up, and uh, it's a word that is going to stand there for us for a little while to come, until we're all awake, I guess. Uh, It was about being spiritually awake, not sleepwalking through life, and just thinking it'll all kind of somehow happen, but being alive to Christ, alive to the Holy Spirit, alive to the opportunities around us, alive enough to speak awake enough to speak so being part of this gospel movement in which the word is spreading it's about prayer it's about helping each other be filled with God's word And if any way I can encourage you in different groups that you might meet in fusion groups meeting with your personal pastor whatever it may be if I can encourage you to share the word of God with each other and, and not be nervous about being perceived as being a bit Hoity toity. Who do you think you are sharing the word of God? I'm a follower of Jesus. It's what we do. Yeah? If we can somehow expect that from each other and give each other permission to do that, that would be really good. And then my prayer is that that will also flow over very, very naturally into us being more ready to take opportunities to speak God's word wherever we are, wherever God might take us, whether that's in our Ephesus or in the back of beyond. We need to pray.